Section two of the Natural History, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Natural History, Volume three, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section two, Book eleven, Chapter ten. The mode in which bees work. The manner in which bees carry on their work is as follows. In the daytime, a guard is stationed at the entrance of the hive, like the sentries in a camp. At night, they take their rest until the morning, when one of them awakes the rest with a humming noise, repeated twice or thrice, just as though it were sounding a trumpet. They then take their flight in a body, if the day is likely to turn out fine, for they have the gift of foreknowing wind and rain, and in such case will keep close within their dwellings. On the other hand, when the weather is fine, and this too they have the power of foreknowing, the swarm issues forth, and at once applies itself to its work, some loading their legs from the flowers, while others fill their mouths with water, and charge the downy surface of their bodies with drops of liquid. Those among them that are young go forth to their labours, and collect the materials already mentioned, while those that are more aged stay within the hives and work. The bees, whose business it is to carry the flowers, with their forefeet load their thighs, which nature has made rough for the purpose, and with their trunks load their forefeet. Bending beneath their load, they then return to the hive, where there are three or four bees ready to receive them and aid in discharging their burdens. For, within the hive as well, they have their allotted duties to perform. Some are engaged in building, others in smoothing the combs, while others again are occupied in passing on the materials, and others in preparing food from the provision which has been brought. That there may be no unequal division, either in their labour, their food, or the distribution of their time, they do not even feed separately. Commencing at the vaulted roof of the hive, they begin the construction of their cells, and, just as we do in the manufacture of a web, they construct their cells from top to bottom, taking care to leave two passages around each compartment, for the entrance of some and the exit of others. The combs, which are fastened to the hive in the upper part, and in a slight degree also at the sides, adhere to each other, and are thus suspended altogether. They do not touch the floor of the hive, and are either angular or round, according to its shape. Sometimes, in fact, they are both angular and round at once, when two swarms are living in unison, but have dissimilar modes of operation. They prop up the combs that are likely to fall by means of arched pillars, at intervals springing from the floor, so as to leave them a passage for the purpose of effecting repairs. The first three ranks of their cells are generally left empty when constructed, that there may be nothing exposed to view which may invite theft, and it is the last ones, more especially, that are filled with honey. Hence it is that the combs are always taken out at the back of the hive. The bees that are employed in carrying look out for a favourable breeze, and if a gale should happen to spring up, they poise themselves in the air with little stones by way of ballast. Some writers, indeed, say that they place them upon their shoulders. When the wind is contrary, they fly close to the ground, taking care, however, to keep clear of the brambles. It is wonderful what strict watch is kept upon their work. All instances of idleness are carefully remarked, the offenders are chastised, and, on a repetition of the fault, punished with death. Their sense of cleanliness, too, is quite extraordinary. Everything is removed that might be in the way, and no filth is allowed to remain in the midst of their work. The ordure, even of those that are at work within, that they may not have to retire to any distance, is all collected in one spot, and on stormy days, when they are obliged to cease their ordinary labours, 
they employ themselves in carrying it out. When it grows towards evening, the buzzing in the hive becomes gradually less and less, until at last one of their number is to be seen flying about the hive with the same loud humming noise with which they were aroused in the morning, thereby giving the signal, as it were, to retire to rest. In this, too, they imitate the usage of the camp. The moment the signal is heard, all is silent. They first construct the dwellings of the commonalty, and then those of the king-bee. If they have reason to expect an abundant season, they add abodes also for the drones. These are cells of a smaller size, though the drones themselves are larger than the bees. CHAPTER Eleven, DRONES The drones have no sting, and would seem to be a kind of imperfect bee, formed the very last of all, the expiring effort, as it were, of worn-out and exhausted old age, a late and tardy offspring, and doomed, in a measure, to be the slaves of the genuine bees. Hence it is that the bees exercise over them a rigorous authority, compel them to take the foremost rank in their labours, and, if they show any sluggishness, punish them without mercy. And not only in their labours do the drones give them their assistance, but in the propagation of their species as well, the very multitude of them contributing greatly to the warmth of the hive. At all events, it is a well-known fact that the greater the multitude of the drones, the more numerous is sure to be the progeny of the swarm. When the honey is beginning to come to maturity, the bees drive away the drones, and setting upon each other in great numbers, put them all to death. It is only in the spring that the drones are ever to be seen. If you deprive a drone of its wings, and then replace it in the hive, it will pull off the wings of the other drones. CHAPTER Twelve: THE QUALITIES OF HONEY In the lower part of the hive they construct for their future sovereign a palatial abode, spacious and grand, separated from the rest, and surmounted by a sort of dome. If this prominence should happen to be flattened, all hopes of progeny are lost. All the cells are hexagonal, each foot having formed its own side. No part of this work, however, is done at any stated time, as the bees seize every opportunity for the performance of their task when the days are fine. In one or two days, at most, they fill their cells with honey. This substance is engendered from the air, mostly at the rising of the constellations, and more especially when Sirius is shining. Never, however, before the rising of the Virgiliae, and then just before daybreak. Hence it is that at early dawn the leaves of the trees are found covered with a kind of honey-like dew, and those who go into the open air at an early hour in the morning find their clothes covered and their hair matted with a sort of unctuous liquid. Whether it is that this liquid is the sweat of the heavens, or whether a saliva emanating from the stars, or a juice exuding from the air while purifying itself, would that it had been, when it comes to us, pure, limpid, and genuine, as it was when first it took its downward descent. But as it is, falling from so vast a height, attracting corruption in its passage, and tainted by the exhalations of the earth as it meets them, sucked, too, as it is, from off the trees and the herbage of the fields, and accumulated in the stomachs of the bees, for they cast it up, again, through the mouth, deteriorated besides by the juices of flowers, and then steeped within the hives and subjected to such repeated changes. Still, in spite of all this, it affords us, by its flavour, a most exquisite pleasure, the result, no doubt, of its ethereal nature and origin. CHAPTER Thirteen where the best honey is produced. The honey is always best in those countries where it is to be found deposited in the calyx of the most exquisite flowers, 
such, for instance, as the districts of Himetus and Hybla, in Attica and Sicily respectively, and after them the island of Calidna. At first honey is thin like water, after which it effervesces for some days and purifies itself like must. On the twentieth day it begins to thicken, and soon after becomes covered with a thin membrane, which gradually increases through the scum which is thrown up by the heat. The honey of the very finest flavour, and the least tainted by the leaves of trees, is that gathered from the foliage of the oak and the linden, and from reeds. Chapter 14. The Kinds of Honey Peculiar to Various Places The peculiar excellence of honey depends, as already stated, on the country in which it is produced. The modes, too, of estimating its quality are numerous. In some countries we find the honeycomb remarkable for the goodness of the wax, as in Sicily, for instance, and the country of the Peligni. In other places the honey itself is found in greater abundance, as in Crete, Cyprus, and Africa. And in others, again, the comb is remarkable for its size. The northern climates, for instance, for in Germany a comb has been known to be as much as eight feet in length, and quite black on the concave surface. But whatever the country in which it may happen to have been produced, there are three different kinds of honey. Spring honey is that made in a comb which has been constructed of flowers, from which circumstance it has received the name of anthonym. There are some persons who say that this should not be touched, because the more abundant the nutriment, the stronger will be the coming swarm, while others, again, leave less of this honey than of any other for the bees, on the ground that there is sure to be a vast abundance at the rising of the greater constellations, as well as at the summer solstice, when the thyme and the vine begin to blossom, for then they are sure to find abundant materials for their cells. In taking the combs, the greatest care is always requisite, for when they are stinted for food, the bees become desperate, and either pine to death, or else wing their flight to other places. But, on the other hand, overabundance will entail idleness, and then they will feed upon the honey, and not the bee-bread. Hence it is that the most careful breeders take care to leave the bees a fifteenth part of this gathering. There is a certain day for beginning the honey-gathering, fixed, as it were, by a law of nature, if man would only understand or observe it, being the thirtieth day after the bees have swarmed and come forth. This gathering mostly takes place before the end of May. The second kind of honey is summer honey, which, from the circumstance of its being produced at the most favourable season, has received the Greek name of horion. It is generally made during the next thirty days after the solstice, while Sirius is shining in all its brilliancy. Nature has revealed in this substance most remarkable properties to mortals, were it not that the fraudulent propensities of man are apt to falsify and corrupt everything. For, after the rising of each constellation, and those of the highest rank more particularly, or after the appearance of the rainbow, if a shower does not ensue, but the dew becomes warmed by the sun's rays, a medicament, and not real honey, is produced, a gift sent from heaven for the cure of diseases of the eyes, ulcers, and maladies of the internal viscera. If this is taken at the rising of Sirius, and the rising of Venus, Jupiter, or Mercury should happen to fall on the same day, as often is the case, the sweetness of this substance, and the virtue which it possesses of restoring man to life, are not inferior to those attributed to the nectar of the gods. CHAPTER fifteen, HOW HONEY IS TESTED Ericheum, Tetralix, or Cicerum The crop of honey is most abundant if gathered at full moon, and it is richest when the weather is fine. In all honey, 
that which flows of itself, like must or oil, has received from us the name of acatum. The summer honey is the most esteemed of all, from the fact of its being made when the weather is driest. It is looked upon as the most serviceable when made from thyme. It is then of a golden colour, and of a most delicious flavour. The honey that we see formed in the calyx of flowers is of a rich and unctuous nature. That which is made from rosemary is thick, while that which is candied is little esteemed. Thyme honey does not coagulate, and on being touched will draw out into thin, viscous threads, a thing which is the principal proof of its heaviness. When honey shows no tenacity, and the drops immediately part from one another, it is looked upon as a sign of its worthlessness. The other proofs of its goodness are the fine aroma of its smell, its being of a sweetness that closely borders on the sour, and being glutinous and pellucid. Cassius Dionysius is of opinion that in the summer gathering the tenth part of the honey ought to be left for the bees if the hives should happen to be well filled, and, even if not, still in the same proportion, while, on the other hand, if there is but little in them, he recommends that it should not be touched at all. The people of Attica have fixed the period for commencing this gathering at the first ripening of the wild fig. Others have made it the day that is sacred to Vulcan. The third kind of honey, which is the least esteemed of all, is the wild honey, known by the name of Erycheum. It is collected by the bees after the first showers of autumn, when the heather alone is blooming in the woods, from which circumstance it derives its sandy appearance. It is mostly produced at the rising of Arcturus, beginning at the day before the Ides of September. Some persons delay the gathering of the summer honey until the rising of Arcturus, because from then till the autumnal equinox there are fourteen days left, and it is from the equinox till the setting of the Vergiliae, a period of forty-eight days, that the heather is in the greatest abundance. The Athenians call this plant by the name of Tetralix, and the Eubians Ciceron, and they look upon it as affording great pleasure to the bees to browse upon, probably because there are no other flowers for them to resort to. This gathering terminates at the end of the vintage and the setting of the Vergiliae, mostly about the Ides of November. Experience teaches us that we ought to leave for the bees two-thirds of this crop, and always that part of the combs as well, which contains the bee-bread. From the winter solstice to the rising of Arcturus, the bees are buried in sleep for sixty days, and live without any nourishment. Between the rising of Arcturus and the vernal equinox, they awake in the warmer climates, but even then they still keep within the hives, and have recourse to the provisions kept in reserve for this period. In Italy, however, they do this immediately after the rising of the Virgiliae, up to which period they are asleep. Some persons, when they take the honey, weigh the hive and all, and remove just as much as they leave. A due sense of equity should always be stringently observed in dealing with them, and it is generally stated that if imposed upon in this division, the swarm will die of grief. It is particularly recommended, also, that the person who takes the honey should be well washed and clean. Bees have a particular aversion, too, to a thief and a menstruous woman. When the honey is taken, it is the best plan to drive away the bees by means of smoke, lest they should become irritated, or else devour the honey themselves. By often applying smoke, too, they are aroused from their idleness to work. But, if they have not duly incubated in the comb, it is apt to become of a livid colour. On the other hand, if they are smoked too often, they will become tainted. The honey, too, a substance which turns sour at the very slightest contact with dew, will very quickly receive injury from the taint thus contracted. 
Hence it is that among the various kinds of honey which are preserved, there is one which is known by the name of Akapnon. Chapter 16. The Reproduction of Bees How bees generate their young has been a subject of great and subtle research among the learned, seeing that no one has ever witnessed any sexual intercourse among these insects. Many persons have expressed an opinion that they must be produced from flowers, aptly and artistically arranged by nature, while others, again, suppose that they are produced from an intercourse with the one which is to be found in every swarm, and is usually called the king. This one, they say, is the only male in the hive, and is endowed with such extraordinary proportions that it may not become exhausted in the performance of its duties. Hence it is that no offspring can be produced without it, all the other bees being females, and attending it in its capacity of a male, and not as their leader. This opinion, however, which is otherwise not improbable, is sufficiently refuted by the generation of the drones, for on what grounds could it possibly happen that the same intercourse should produce an offspring part of which is perfect and part in an imperfect state? The first surmise which I have mentioned would appear, indeed, to be much nearer the truth, were it not the case that here another difficulty meets us, the circumstance that sometimes, at the extremities of the combs, there are produced bees of a larger size, which put the others to flight. This noxious bee bears the name of Astrus. And how is it possible that it should ever be produced, if it is the fact that the bees themselves form their progeny? A fact, however, that is well ascertained is that bees sit like the domestic fowl, that which is hatched by them at first having the appearance of a white maggot, and lying across and adhering so tenaciously to the wax as to seem to be part of it. The king, however, from the earliest moment, is of the colour of honey, just as though he were made of the choicest flowers nor has he at any time the form of a grub, but from the very first is provided with wings. The rest of the bees, as soon as they begin to assume his shape, have the name of nymphae, while the drones are called sirens, or siphines. If a person takes off the head of either kind before the wings are formed, the rest of the body is considered a most choice morsel by the parents. In process of time the parent bees instill nutriment into them, and sit upon them, making on this occasion a loud humming noise, for the purpose, it is generally supposed, of generating that warmth which is so requisite for hatching the young. At length the membrane in which each of them is enveloped, as though it lay in an egg, bursts asunder, and the whole swarm comes to light. This circumstance was witnessed at the suburban retreat of a man of consular dignity near Rome, whose hives were made of transparent lantern-horn. The young were found to be developed in the space of forty-five days. In some combs there is found what is known by the name of nail-wax. It is bitter and hard, and is only met with when the bees have failed to hatch their young, either from disease or natural sterility. It is the abortion, in fact, of the bees. The young ones, the moment they are hatched, commence working with their parents, as though in a course of training, and the newly-born king is accompanied by a multitude of his own age. That the supply may not run short, each swarm rears several kings, but afterwards, when this progeny begins to arrive at a mature age, with one accord they put to death the inferior ones, lest they should create discord in the swarm. There are two sorts of king bees. Those of a reddish colour are better than the black and mottled ones. The kings have always a peculiar form of their own, and are double the size of any of the rest. Their wings are shorter than those of the others, their legs are straight, their walk more upright, 
and they have a white spot on the forehead, which bears some resemblance to a diadem. They differ, too, very much from the rest of the community in their bright and shining appearance. Chapter 17. The Mode of Government of the Bees Let a man employ himself, forsooth, in the inquiry whether there has been only one Hercules, how many fathers Luber there have been, and all the other questions which are buried deep in the mould of antiquity. Here behold a tiny object, one to be met with at most of our country retreats, and numbers of which are always at hand, and yet, after all, it is not agreed among authors whether or not the king is the only one among them that is provided with no sting, and is possessed of no other arms than those afforded him by his majestic office, or whether nature has granted him a sting and has only denied him the power of making use of it, it being a well-known fact that the ruling bee never does use a sting. The obedience which his subjects manifest in his presence is quite surprising. When he goes forth, the whole swarm attends him, throngs about him, surrounds him, protects him, and will not allow him to be seen. At other times, when the swarm is at work within, the king is seen to visit the works, and appears to be giving his encouragement, being himself the only one that is exempt from work. Around him are certain other bees which act as bodyguards and lictors, the careful guardians of his authority. The king never quits the hive except when the swarm is about to depart, a thing which may be known a long time beforehand, as for some days a peculiar buzzing noise is to be heard within, which denotes that the bees are waiting for a favourable day, and making all due preparations for their departure. On such an occasion, if care is taken to deprive the king of one of his wings, the swarm will not fly away. When they are on the wing, every one is anxious to be near him, and takes a pleasure in being seen in the performance of its duty. When he is weary, they support him on their shoulders, and when he is quite tired, they carry him outright. If one of them falls in the rear from weariness, or happens to go astray, it is able to follow the others by the aid of its acuteness of smell. Wherever the king-bee happens to settle, that becomes the encampment of all. End of section 2